Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Hi, everyone. So turns out I might have been tad overly ambitious when I came back from maternity leave and conducted a bunch of podcast interviews, which I then proceeded to sit on for a couple of months as I focused on other initiatives like our investment report and the ever-encompassing Clubhouse, which has been fantastic. But what that means is that today's episode was actually recorded in February, and I know we're releasing it now in April. So apologies for the references to winter, um, but it's still super interesting. So I interviewed Roberta Barbieri, who works in sustainability for PepsiCo, about their pledge to get their emissions to net zero by 2040, which is 10 years earlier than is called for in the Paris Agreement. It's a really exciting announcement that they made back in January, and so I was really keen to dig in. So the next voice you hear will be Roberta's and she'll be telling us where in the world she is today or was in February. In Richfield, Connecticut in the northeast of the United States in the middle of a winter blizzard. It's beautiful out. We've got about a foot of snow already and we're probably going to get another half a foot. How amazing. Yeah, we were just saying before we started recording that I lived not too far away in Sherman before I moved back to the UK. So missing that, we just have lots of rain over here, unsurprisingly. Yeah, that's (laughs) not a shock to hear. So how would you describe your food preferences? So I'm a vegetarian as of the last two years and love fruits and vegetables. My all-time kind of favorite vegetarian dinner to go is spanakopita, uh, spinach and feta pie. It's a Greek dish. Oh, yum. Yes, I do know. It is so good. Spinach and feta is a great combination if you haven't tried it. That really is. I was actually at um, Farmer's Market near us the other uh, the other day and my niece bought one of those. <laughs> she loves it. She's only six. And oh. I always think it's like quite a mature taste for, yeah. for someone that young. Amazing for a six-year-old to willingly pick that out. <laughs> that was her choice. Yeah, exactly. Very funny. And so why why are you a vegetarian? So my I have two sons um, and the older one, uh, who's 21 now, when he was 18 or 19, he moved into kind of hippie, hippie kind of a, you know, look and feel and, you know, thought about uh, majoring in peace studies in college. And so he was, you know, doing yoga and he became a vegetarian and he challenged me uh, on the greenhouse gas impacts of meat, animal protein, which are pretty significant. uh, And I had to stop and say, as as being a lifelong uh, passionate environmentalist who has dedicated her career and much of my life outside of my career to trying to save the planet, uh, why I was not a vegetarian. You know, I couldn't couldn't explain it to myself because, you know, I drive an electric car, I buy renewable energy credits for my home, I compost. But I wasn't, a, I, I was still eating a fair amount of meat. So I decided in that moment to uh, stop and I've been a vegetarian ever since. Ironically, he's moved back to kind of flexitarian. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. 
Well, so that obviously, yeah, leads into into your role at at PepsiCo as VP of Sustainability, and I think you've been there for for nearly five years now. That's correct. Yep. Because I actually met some of your colleagues. I think it was just over a year ago before the madness started uh, <laughs> at a football game, and it seemed to me like the company's sustainability initiatives or at least officially was kind of getting going. I know you're about to publish a big sustainability report or you just had, and that was the first time, but you've already been there for five years. So I'm just intrigued because obviously we're going to get onto this big announcement that happened a couple of weeks ago with your emissions target, but just interested before we talk about that, what's been the evolution of the sustainability policy at PepsiCo? So we actually have had, have published a sustainability report for years. Last year was, was not the first time. Uh, what you may be thinking about is we published our first First report showing compliance with the uh, TCFD standard, which is a climate financial disclosure standard. And that 2020 was our first year of, of publishing a TCFD report. But we have a pretty deep and longstanding sustainability program at PepsiCo. It's one of the reasons that I took the job uh, almost five years ago. Started back in like 2005, 2006 with a real focus on uh, sustainability kind of within the four walls of our plants, you know, energy conservation and, and water use efficiency. We started a sustainable agriculture program back in like 20, I think it was 2012-ish. Um, so we've we've been working on sustainability for years. I would say in the last year and a half to two years since our new CEO took over, Ramon LaGuarta, the longtime PepsiCo person, but took over as CEO two years ago when Indra Nui retired, we really are doubling down on our sustainability commitments and uh, agenda. And our most recent announcement uh, two weeks ago about our climate goal is a great example of that. I mean, literally, we've doubled down on our old climate goal, doubling more than doubling it, and aiming to reduce absolute greenhouse gas emissions across our entire value chain from the farmer in the field to the empty bottle in the recycling bin and everywhere in between by over 40%, which is uh, double our, our old goal. And within our emissions, just from our direct operations, so our, our direct operational footprint, we're going to um, reduce in absolute terms by 75%. And we've committed, and that's by 2030, and we've committed to be entirely net zero emissions by 2040, which is a 10 years earlier than what's called for in the um, Paris Climate Accord. So super exciting. It was a big moment for, for me and my team and, and for sustainability in general. PepsiCo, I, you know, I couldn't be more excited. It's, it's um, such the right thing to do. Fantastic. Well, yes. Yeah, so let's unpack that a little bit. So some of these terms, you know, absolute emissions and net zero, can you just quickly explain those? Yep. I'll start with uh, absolute. So what that means is that we'll, we will reduce our emissions by, by 40%, no matter how much our business grows. So our baseline year is 2015. Our target year is 2030. What we, what we mean by absolute reductions is in 2030, our total carbon footprint as a company across our entire value chain must be 40% smaller than what it was in 2015. 
So even if we double the business, you know, double volume and we sell twice as many Lay's potato chips and, you know, Pepsi beverages, our footprint has to be 40% less than what it was in uh, 2015. So accounting for all that growth and preventing our emissions from growing with us. That's the whole concept between decoupling business growth from fossil fuels and the greenhouse gas emissions that using them causes. So that's absolute. Net zero uh, is another concept where the assumption is that today, at least, we don't know how to completely eliminate all greenhouse gas emissions from our value chain. Like there are some um, sources of fossil fuel use in society that we don't have solves for today, uh, like jet fuel or renewable fuels for, for manufacturing. So the idea behind net zero is you reduce as much as you possibly can. And that's what we're doing hard through now until 2030. And then what's left, the emissions that you can't actually reduce or eliminate, you compensate for by removing from the atmosphere through carbon sequestration in soil, for example, or reforestation. So it's it's carbon removals on top of the carbon reductions that you've been making. And the two of those uh, net out to zero. So I thought you were going to say potentially purchasing carbon credits to make up for that shortfall as well. Would that be something that you might entertain as well? Yes, sure. I think the uh, theme for managing the climate crisis that the world is in today is two things, all hands on deck, all solutions being used in parallel and carbon offsets are, are one solution. The Now that being said, they need to be um, high quality, they need to be verifiable, they need to be additional and pre- our preference is uh, that they're uh, nature-based removal solutions. That being said, we're not relying on them in the short term because we have a lot of work to do on reductions. And, you know, the concept is you reduce, reduce, reduce. And when you can't reduce anymore, you can move to um, looking at carbon credits or carbon offsets. There's another concept that's developing of carbon insets, which where carbon offsets are carbon reductions or removals that are done outside of your supply chain somewhere else in the world, and you just purchase the rights to those offsets. Insets are similar projects that are done within your supply chain, like within our farming communities, for example. And those we're we're looking at and actually starting to do this year, in fact, uh, we're, we're looking to help develop that insets market because we think it's a great solution. And it's part of our supply chain. So it has uh, multiple benefits for us. Yes. Well, so I just want to just ask one more thing about the carbon credits. I don't want to get bogged down in that. But thinking about your background, you've probably seen quite you know a bit of carbon trading or carbon markets has been concept for, for a long time and hasn't really worked. But it feels like now in agriculture, it's something that's gathering steam and you have various different companies that are aiming to measure how carbon is uh, stored in the soil and aiming to even incentivize it too. You know, what is, why has it been this kind of up and down and volatile space, you know, that hasn't really kicked off? Yeah, it's a great question, Louisa. And there's an uh, organization, the Task Force for Voluntary Carbon Markets, that just issued a report um, back in November that articulated, I think, the, the history pretty well. The lack of a more structured marketplace for offsets 
that has clear rules, a governing body, clear verification and validation rules, financial mechanisms that are well beyond my purview, but basically bringing rigor and credibility to the offset marketplace will go a really long way in laying to rest kind of the historic lack of credibility that offsets have brought, particularly, I think, within the NGO community. I I also think there's been concerns in the past uh, that offsets are a get-out-of-jail-free card for companies. You know, okay, I'll go plant some trees somewhere else in the world, and I'll just continue to uh, emit greenhouse gas emissions, conscious, you know, guilt-free. That, you know, obviously is, is not anything that PepsiCo would ever do or why we would ever do do offsets. I think that's changing or that needs to change now because we do desperately need all the solutions that we can get. And they do need to be real solutions and offsets can be real solutions for sure. Mm-hmm. So digging into your plans then, you've helpfully in a press release of I've split it out into some of the different areas. And one of those, of course, is agriculture, which is one third of PepsiCo's emissions. And you talk about, you know, wanting to scale sustainable agriculture and regenerative practices, improve soil health, biodiversity, and so on. How does that work in practice? Because, I mean, you must be, you know, impacting millions of acres globally. We do. We work with uh, something like 40,000 farmers around the world. Uh, So we have a huge footprint. And uh, that gives us a great platform upon which to drive change. So we have what I think is a world-class sustainable agriculture program. And uh, one of the uh, really neat things that that we've done through our uh, SFP is create over 250 demo farms around the world where these are farmers that we work with who dedicate a portion of their cropland to a demonstration farm. And they, with our help, they implement the sustainable ag practices that our team uh, helps them do, drip irrigation, cover cropping, nutrient management. And the neat thing is that that part of the farmer's land is open to his or her peers in the far- local farming community. And we bring that other, these other local farmers in to see the results of these, ag- these regenerative practices. And... On average, some of them um, show yield increases of 30% for the for the farmer who's given up that, that patch of land. The farmer's happy because he or she is growing, you know, their yields are increasing, they're making more money. They're, uh, we're happy because we're proving, you know, we have evidence points that our regenerative practices are actually a win-win for soil health, for water management, for farmer livelihoods. And we spread the word in the community at large by showing how they work peer to peer, you know, because PepsiCo coming in and say, Mr. and Mrs. Farmer, we would like you to do this, not going to go very far. But if the farmer himself or herself shows their neighbors how uh, good these practices, the great results that they get from these practices, done. That's, it's going really well. So that's one way that we 
not only help um, disseminate sustainable farming practices in our own farming supply chain, but in broader communities where we operate. And so is the the goal and the plan that all your farmers will transition? Like what's the need, you know, if you're doing sort of the, the calculations on reaching that net zero, is there a need that all of your farms have tra- transitioned to those redemptive practices by 2040 in order for that to be possible? The need is for a lot of them to transition. Um, you know, we're we're. I think it might be unrealistic of us to think that we could move. Uh, you know, a hundred percent of our entire portfolio of of farmers to that to that place. Especially when you consider that many of them are very small holders, smallholder farmers. You know, an acre, a couple of acres, growing potatoes for us, for example, in in India. So scaling our practices across such a broad base uh, is challenging and will take time. But our focus is not just on our farmers. It's trying to help the broader system change. Another way that, that we're doing that is in, in, we, we're partnering with the World Economic Forum on an innovation hub where we showcase agritech, showcase regenerative practices, open to all, you know, it's open sourced information and education. And that's to, to benefit far beyond, you know, our, our uh, supply chain. So it's going to be a combination of a lot of boots on the ground work over the next, you know, nine years to get us to our 2030 midterm target, combined with working in the broader system to push decarbonization uh, in other ways throughout the system. Interesting. And I think you preempted uh, another sort of line of questioning from me, which is about innovation and, you know, technology startups and how you interact with them across the supply chain. So not necessarily just on the farm, but in manufacturing and closer to consumer as well. You know, what has been the history of, of PepsiCo's interaction with startups and, and that and that World Economic Forum initiative for Agritech? Is that the first time you're going to be working with Agritech startups? It's not. Actually, when, when you asked me about tech startups, my mind goes to our packaging programs, which obviously is packaging is a big part of the food system and uh, a big also a big part of our kind of carbon footprint, if you will. Agricultural emissions are a third, as you said. Uh, packaging is a close second in terms of size of, of our carbon pie. And we have a history of some pretty neat innovation and R&D around uh, packaging materials. For example, we've been working on the a biodegradable, renewable material, flexible films for our snacks bags. So, you know, Lay's potato chip bags, that's called flexible film. It's plastic, fossil fuel based. We uh, have been piloting, actually with Walmart in Chile, bio, 100% uh, industrial compostable bag that if you can bring get it to an industrial composter, it, it will biodegrade. Uh, that's kind of generation one. We realize that not a lot of people have access to an industrial composter. So uh, we're working on a generation two that's biodegradable in home composting. So that's pretty cool. We also 
tech startup called uh, Danimer Scientific that we've been working with for years on that. We're doing similar things on the beverage packaging side. So we have a fair amount of PET bottles and we're part, we've partnered with a couple of tech startups on finding uh, renewable lower carbon alternatives uh, to our bottles. Let me see if I can think of something else that we would be partnering on. We're doing um, zero emission technologies in our own operations. So we have a facility in Modesto, California. It's a Frito-Lay facility. And that facility is kind of our flagship for low carbon uh, transportation. We will have electric trucks. We've some of the first uh, Tesla electric trucks will land at that facility in the near future. Uh, All of our tractors, our forklifts will be electric. We've got uh, a number of natural gas powered tractors, which are lower carbon than, than fossil, than gasoline or diesel. We also have solar power on site, on site battery storage and electric charging for employee vehicles. So it's going to be this neat little innovative hub for EV technology, which is kind of, that's kind of fun. Interesting. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about, you know, upgrading, you know, you mentioned environmentally sustainable manufacturing, warehousing, transportation, and so on. So is that going to be like your demonstration farm, but your demonstration manufacturing facility that you then hope to roll out across the world? Yeah, that's that's a great way to think of it. Yeah, a very that's a very fair way to think of it. Another example that just popped into my mind, Louisa, that I really wanted to share because it's neat is Walker's Crisps in the UK is is a big um, brand for us. Uh, And uh, we're piloting innovative technology to make low carbon, nutrient rich fertilizer from potato peelings from Walker's. So the, and that fertilizer will then go back to our farmer fields and be used to fertilize our potatoes growing in the field. So a little bit of closing the circle on Walker's potatoes and will that'll reduce Walker's carbon emissions by uh, from growing potatoes by 70%. And that's a, a technology that um, we created in partnership with a British clean tech firm called CCM Technologies. So that's, cool. that's neat too. Yeah, that's a very, very big reduction. So how can startups interact with PepsiCo? How can they get in touch? I mean, I presume you have an innovation team perhaps that is that is where they would they would find someone to you know speak to. That's correct. We have a, a team we call it the external innovation team. And they partner with a couple of agencies that kind of uh, curate new technologies and do we do a lot of tech scouting through that group. So we actually have right now a kind of call to arms out there uh, for climate friendly, low carbon tech startups of any kind that could help us in our um, greenhouse gas emission reduction journey. So pretty easy to find, I believe, on PepsiCo.com and also promoted within the kind of the inventors communities that are that are out there. So we're actively looking for solutions and for tech partners. What keeps you up at night when you think about PepsiCo's supply chain and its environmental impact? Uh, you know what keeps me up at night, Luisa? You know, I'll give you I'll give you two answers. One is 
the concern that not everybody is doing what we're doing. And frankly, what we're doing only matters if everybody does the same. You know, we can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to zero, but if nobody else does, it's not going to matter. That's Yeah, actually, that's a big point because I noticed in your press release you mentioned that getting to net zero is like taking 5 million cars off the road in a year or something, which is great, but I mean, it's only 5 million cars. You know, there's billions and billions. Yeah, there are. And and I think the, the, the last 12 months have been a little bit of a tipping point, and that might be a little too optimistic a word to use, but for uh, certainly for climate pledges, climate commitments around the world. I mean, even from governments like China committing to um, carbon neutral by or, or net zero emissions by 2060. While there's a lot of great activity uh, going on in the last 12 months, it's at the last minute. It really is. I mean, this is this is the last minute, guys. And you know, we don't we we have barely enough time to to act. So the next nine years, because we're already a year into this decade, the next nine years are are going to make or break us. So that that's part of what keeps me up at night, Louisa. The other thing that keeps me up at night from a day-to-day perspective is this sense of urgency that we're not moving fast enough, even within PepsiCo. That pulls me out of bed every morning. <laughs> yeah, we need you. We need you to be getting out of bed. <laughs> so on a slightly lighter note, I like to do a hot or not round with some food trends, just to see what, what you're thinking about some of these. Gluten-free. I think hot to medium hot. It might be a little past its moment, but it's uh, it's pretty well entrenched out there. Fermented food? Oh, I think that's cooling off. Drinkable meals, you know, like a, a meal in a in a shake, like a Soylent or something. Oh boy, cool. Yeah, you don't like those. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't see the I don't see the appeal. I just don't. Now this is a funny one because I used to ask this before COVID. Robotic cafes. So you'd have like um, a robotic barista to serve you your coffee. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Before COVID, I would have said, what? No way. But maybe there's a future for it. Plant-based meat alternatives. Hot. Do you eat them? Yes. Vegetarian? Yep. And PepsiCo just announced a partnership with uh, Beyond Meat, in fact. Oh, of course. Yes. Were you involved in that? Was that because of sustainability, you know, plans and targets or it was it was something more on the commercial side? I was not involved. In fact, I, I heard about it along with everybody else. <laughs> oh, so you must have been very excited about that. Yeah, I was. <laughs> okay, a couple more. What about lab-grown meat? You know, like the, the cell cultured meat. Would that be something you would eat? Yes, I would eat it. I think I think there's still a little bit of an ick factor there for most people, though. And CBD infused foods and drinks. Warm. If you could paint a picture of what the future food system will look like in 2050, what would it be? Yeah, I will go super optimistic. And because I'm a raging optimist, you kind of have to be to get out of bed in the morning in this business. The And I'll say three tips. And this is something, you know, that, that we talk a lot about at PepsiCo. Resilient. Food system is resilient. It's inclusive. And it's sustainable. And just a couple of words on each one. So resilient, a resilient food system is where in 2050, we've restored the health of the natural systems that support the food system. You know, these are natural systems that we have degraded and degraded and degraded. 
and it's why we're in the position that we're in. It's the nutrient cycle, it's the water cycle, soil health, biodiversity, all these natural systems that support how we grow and make and transport food have been restored including farmer livelihoods. So farmer livelihoods in 2050 are strong and stable, which they are not today. So that's resilient. Inclusive for us and for me in particular, that starts with empowering women. So building their access to water, to financing, to land ownership, empowering them to be uh, decision makers in, especially in the, the farming community and throughout the whole food system. So that's inclusive and then sustainable. And what's top of mind for me on, on the definition of sustainable is frankly the climate change crisis. So if we're standing in 2050, Louisa, it means we've turned the food system from a major cause of climate change, which it is today, to one of our most effective solutions to climate change in 2050. And that's solutions across the whole food system, from ag to packaging to production to distribution and to consumption. So resilient, inclusive, sustainable. That's the food system in 2050 for me. Oh, I hope so. Finally you had a moonshot idea and maybe this is something you've been thinking about you're thinking about different innovations that can that can help reach your targets uh you know this doesn't necessarily be something that's like totally realistic but like a moonshot idea one area that you would challenge you would love to solve for what would it be i'll give can i give you two (laughs) okay that's fine well, first, I would say the, the the food innovation hubs that we're partnering with World Economic Forum for have the potential to be a moonshot, bringing technology and innovation to the local levels and spreading it, dispersing it everywhere. And then another moonshot would be renewable fuels. So renewable electricity, we know how to do, we're doing it renewable fuels like the oil or the the diesel that we burn in our trucks or in our boilers in our in our plants a different story we need some really good strong scalable cost effective solutions for for renewable fuels those would be my two sounds good well thank you so much um roberta it's been lovely to talk to you from mm-hmm. snowy connecticut <laughs> send my love to sherman and I hope, yeah, I hope we can stay in touch and good luck with this huge target. Thanks so much, Louisa. Appreciate it. Have, have a good day. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.